0: We'll hear argument next in number 00203, United States versus the Cleveland Indians Baseball Company. Mr. Feldman. Court.
1: The question presented in this case is whether back pay uh, for purposes of the the, um, (coughs) Federal Insurance Contribution Act, known as FICA, and the Federal Unemployment Tax Act, known as FUTA, whether back pay under those statutes is taxed in the amounts applicable to the year in which it was paid or the year in which it should have been paid. In our view, the plain language of the statute provides a clear answer to that question. All five of the statutory provisions that are directly applicable to this case are based the tax on the, quote, the wages paid during a calendar year, not the wages that should be, have been paid or would have been paid or could have been paid if events had been other than they were.
2: You know, I have just one big problem with your case, and that is the, the case from this Court uh, dealing not with the taxability, but with the calculation of benefits under statutes using the very same language, where we look back at the year when it should have been paid in calculating benefits. And your opponent is going to say um, and has said in the brief that it will cause lots of disruption if we were to adopt your view in that area. Can you have these... Statutes using the very same language and have a different interpretation for calculating benefits than you do for taxing
1: let, let me just, the wages? I have one caveat before I answer the question, which is actually the language, in nobody's view, I think is the same. The statutes that are at issue here were not at issue in Narotco if any particular language was being interpreted in, in Narotco, and I'm not sure it was.
2: Well, but they both, they talk have,
1: about,
2: they both have language referring to wages paid.
1: Right. That's true. But they, it's slightly different. They say the calendar quarters in which it was paid. So it is slightly different, even, even the provision that might have been applicable there. But beyond that, the court in Narotco based its decision on the purposes of the Social Security Act in providing security for people as they reach older age and as they retire. The court referred to that and, I think, construed the particular statutes it had there in terms of the statutory scheme in which it was found, which was a security scheme of that sort. Okay,
2: but in, in answer to my question, are you taking the view that we can leave that the way it is and calculate benefits Yes. The way Narotka suggests and not be disturbed by the fact that it's a different view here?
1: Yeah, I actually think that there's no problem at all. In the first place, I'd point out that that's the way it's been done. The Internal Revenue Service, since the time of Narotka, has taken the position uh, that the wages paid rule is a statutory test for taxes. On the other hand, the Social Security Administration has taken the view that at least for statutory back pay, which wouldn't apply to this case, but at least for statutory back pay, they will allocate it back. And that's been going on for 60 years, and it hasn't caused an enormous problem. In fact, it's caused no problem at all. Um, As far as the specific, I mean, I could go through some of the specific examples of problems that that, uh, respondents say would be caused in the statute by their view. For example, there is an exclusion from wages for money that's paid to somebody uh, more than six uh, on disability, uh, for disability more than six months after the person, the employee stopped working for the employer. Well, I don't see any problem that is created by applying the wages paid for taxes to that payment. In fact, the problem would be created quite the contrary. Um, Under the the wages paid rule, you look, you count six months after the employee stopped working, which is what Congress wanted to do. Payments made after that date are not taxed. Payments made before that date are taxed. Under respondent's view, you'd have to take all the payments that were made after that date and try to figure out whether they should have been paid. Should they have been paid earlier or should they have been paid later? you have to take the pay-
3: be kept don't, don't those records have to be kept for Social Security allocation purposes? So the employer, to, to determine quarters of coverage, would have to supply those records to the Social Security Administration.
1: Well, not quite. The Social Security, the issue arises I would say, with less intensity and frequency in Social Security for a number of reasons. One is that as a Social security under the Social Security scheme, they essentially permit you either your choice, option of either going back or of uh, using the wages paid rule. And therefore, a lot of cases, since you have a choice, a lot of cases don't even arise because they just use, can, may use the wages paid rule. I think, secondly, under the Social Security scheme, because of the way that scheme works, it's a lot less significant, the allocation uh, a decision. Under Social Security, all you need is 40 quarters of coverage in order to be a fully insured individual. And most people already have that and it doesn't really matter whether they, whether it's in the, the quarter that it would be paid or the quarter or some other quarter is allocated to. In addition, in addition, under the Social Security scheme, your benefits are based essentially on your average annual earnings. That's the way they're currently calculated. And since it's an average annual earnings, it doesn't really matter how you, where you allocate the wages. It won't make most, much difference for most people's Social Security because it's, you're taking an average anyhow over some many-year period of time, usually. Now, I'm not saying it will never make a difference, but the issue arises much less sharply and with much less frequency in the Social Security context. Well, but in any event... it
3: really is... Are you taking a position that the pr- provisions, the FICA and FUDA, however you pronounce them, those provisions dictate the position that the government is taking? Or are you saying, yeah, they could have gone for symmetry with Naratko, but this statute could go either way and our consistent interpretation, that the service's consistent interpretation has been when it's paid is when it's income?
1: No, I think the, wa- the wages paid language in FICA and FUDA is entirely unambiguous. It says wages paid during the particular year. And I think that that ends the question as far as FICA and FUTA goes. The court in Narodko had adopted a different construction of somewhat different language. In the Social Security Act, I think the fairest reading of Narodko is probably that the court felt that this was not, didn't tie it to any particular, the allocation question, didn't tie it to any particular language, but just decided that an exception of this sort was necessary to accomplish the purposes of the Social Security
4: Act. Do you think Narodko was wrongly decided? You don't ask us to change it.
1: No, we don't. It was a statutory uh, decision, and I don't think that there's any basis to overrule it. I think that the, the court didn't give any explanation of how it arrived at the conclusion that you have to allocate back based on any particular language of the statute. And that's one reason why I think the best reading of Narodko is that the court was just adopting a kind of extra-statutory exception and saying, given the purposes of the Social Security Act and of providing security for people so that they'll know they'll get the, the, the funds and won't descend into poverty as they get older, uh, given those purposes, this is really the only way to do it for those purposes. The court did not look at the specific uh, language of the statutes here or the specific changes that those statutes had gone through to arrive at that language. Originally in 1935, in the 1935 Act, the FICA and what became FICA and FUDA was actually all part of the Social Security Act. Those taxes were based on wages paid for employment during a year. That meant, and everybody agreed at that time, you had to look at when the employment occurred, not when the wages were paid. That scheme was in effect for a few years, and in 1939, Congress saw that it caused confusion and difficulties and said, we have to change this because we don't have have to want to have to. It's easy to figure out when somebody was paid. Indeed, in this case, they stipulated that they were paid in March of 1994, and usually that's a question that doesn't cause any problems. So we're going to base the taxes in 1939 on Wages paid. Now, in 1946, Congress extended that to the wage base provision. So, by the 1946, everything was in line to avoid the kind of confusions and uncertainty that were caused by having to look and see when the employment was performed.
5: But but none of of the statutory changes address this point specifically. I I think
1: that quite to the contrary, I think they do. I think the changing because I think changes to wages paid was an unambiguous. Change that required that the tax be based on... It, it
5: is certainly unambiguous with respect to the normal payment of wages uh, in accordance with whatever the wage contract is. Uh, but if, if we take the position, and, and I, I will confess that I, I'm, I'm inclined to, and I, I want, that's what I want you to address, if, if we take the position that uh, the statute simply does not address the problem that we've got here, it addressed the problem of accrual versus cash methods when you're when you're doing your taxing uh, in the normal course, but it doesn't address, the, the in effect, the back wage problem. If we take that position, why isn't it sensible for us to say the normal bedrock philosophy uh, of remedial orders is to put the wronged party in the position that the wronged party would have been in If in fact the defendant has acted as the defendant should have, and if we take that position, then we're going to, uh, in effect, find the wages payable for these various tax purposes when they should have been paid. I don't think that
1: that's the that is the philosophy when you have litigation between the wrongdoer and the wronged party. I don't think that that's a part of the philosophy of the tax code. The government is not the wrong, the party that committed any wrong in this case or in any of the other right. cases. Right. The government is
5: a neutral party so far as that is concerned. But so why should a neutral party, in effect, have a, uh, in effect, a different rule for its taxation uh, from the rule which, in effect, uh, uh, determines the relationships of the, of the two parties to the litigation? Why, why should we? Why should we have disparate rules? Because because
1: we know that because what Congress was looking for was an administrable t- rule to apply for the tax system here under but, respondents' rule. What
5: is what? I, I, we don't have the same administri- problem of administration when we look back with back pay and say when it should have been when should it have been paid that we have when Congress was addressing the problem in 1939. Uh, which was an accrual kind of problem in which uh, the, the taxes are due on wages before the wages are actually paid. I mean, those, those are entirely different administrative problems. And I, d- I guess I don't really see what the administrative problem is uh, in, in the back pay context.
1: I, I, well, I think the administrative problem is that under the should-have-been-paid rule that respondent advocates, there's two distinct areas of controversy that don't arise under the wages paid rule that's in the statute. First, in our society, people are ordinarily paid for services performed during a certain period. So in order to figure out when wages should be paid, you have to figure out when the services were performed or for what period they're being paid. That's exactly the inquiry that was required under the 1935 statute. Yeah, but the... it would the, be reinstituted take, take this under case
5: this Take this case. What is the problem in this case? These people weren't being paid on it for doing piecework. Uh, they, they were being paid a salary under a, a contract which, at least so far as the, the briefs indicated, would call for regular wage payments. So I don't, I don't see any administrative problem in, in applying uh, the respondents' rule in this case. Well,
1: in, in every case, there, in, there may not be a problem in every case, although I would add I'm not sure in this case whether it's been developed when the wages should have been paid. It's, well, do you have any reason to
5: believe it would be difficult to develop that?
1: I I don't know what kinds of arrangements they have, but sometimes employers pay things early. Sometimes they pay late. There are many, many kinds of employment in this country. There's casual and part-time workers. There's commissioned workers, royalty-based workers. There's employers who decide to pay early against a later commission. All of, in all of those cases, what you'd have to do is look back and see when was the work performed and now when should have been, in the ordinary course, the wages paid. And it offers an opportunity. But, is, isn't, uh, that the opportunity,
5: is, but, but isn't that what is determined in, in effect in the contract actions uh, that result in, in the judgments uh, of, of back pay? In other words, don't at the time, the, the uh, as it were, the parties in the government confront the problem that you raise haven't they in the normal course already confronted that problem uh, in in the lawsuit, which results in the back pay award? I I don't think that that's necessarily so. I mean, I think one question that frequently, especially when
1: cases are settled and are not resolved by a final judgment, one question that nobody has to decide is when should the services, when were the services performed and when the money should have been paid. You're just paying somebody some money. You can tell the date that the money was paid is very easy, but there's numerous opportunities for both for collusion between parties to say that it should have been paid on a, whatever date is going to uh, work out best for them. Uh, there's opportunities for disputes between employers and employees about when the work was performed, when the wages should have been paid for that work, because they, employers and employees may have themselves have different interests. There's the sa- it, it's the same confusion and difficulties that Congress wanted to move away from. I, un- on the, the
3: income tax side, the back pay award itself, Yes. say back pay was attributable to 86, 87, but it's paid in 94 for income tax purposes. Nowadays, it's 94 income. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Uh, um, For almost all, at least on the individual side, for almost all individual taxpayers, uh, they pay on a cash basis. And there's
4: Well, what about for the employer's deduction? I wanted to ask. You
1: know, for the employer's deduction, it's not in the record here, and I'm not sure what basis the employer is working. But since the employers and employees have to be on the same year, it really makes sense to look at the individuals, because we do know that the individuals' taxes are going to be in, on, a, uh, on a cash basis. And are I, I take
4: it 50%. the employer gets a deduction for the FICA and the FDCA? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. That's correct.
1: And keeping this, keeping the, the uh, FICA and food taxes on the same basis as the uh, as the income tax also avoids some further confusion in these schemes. When Congress ena- enacted the FICA and FU- FUTA schemes, and when they changed it in 1939 and 1946, these schemes were supposed to be simple and easy to administer. They were actually, it follows, in fact, uh, uh, a forciori from the fact that individuals do this under the income tax, and nobody's disputed that so far, that it should be treated the same way under FICA and FUTA. Those taxes apply usually to almost all wages. There's a few, there are some exceptions, but very few people actually come within them.
4: Well, they start me, with we, we, we have three arguments. We have the plain language of the statute as to which you have the slight edge. You have the neurote which obviously the respondents do. And in the middle ground, you have ease of administration, and I, I can't quite tell from the brief I think there's something to be said on each side for that.
1: I, well, I don't. I don't really see anything to be said, frankly, on the other side for ease of administration. They argue that there are a bunch of statutory uh, that there are a bunch of statutory provisions defining wages and so on that would be would come up with results that they say Congress wouldn't have wanted. But all of those provisions are precisely worded provisions that tie something to payments made during a certain period of time, and Congress advisedly, I think, in adopting those provisions, they didn't say, well, the employer, they're not wages if the employer was really just giving a gratuitous payment. And so you have to look and see whether it was a gratuitous payment. They said six months after the employee ceased working, if it comes after more than six months, it's uh, not taxed. If it's less than six months, it is taxed. and, And really, that's very consistent with the whole FICA and FUTA schemes where these taxes are not generally as high as the income tax and the food tax is rather low, the whole scheme was you applied from dollar number one you try to have a simple rule that 's easily administrable well, what what
4: happens if let's say it 's a small employer and he 's just late on paying the wage uh, he pays it in January instead of december uh, what what 's the standard uh rule for allocation. Look
1: at the the, time it was paid. It says in in the regulations, it says when it was actually paid, the only exception is constructive payment, which comes in very few cases, and that's where it's actually available to the employee, but the employee didn't pick up the check or something.
6: Mr. Feldman, can I just ask you, you may have covered this, but in the red brief, toward the end of the brief, you have a lot of anomalous examples. If you follow one rule for benefit purposes, another rule for tax purposes, you get a bunch of anomalies, they they suggest. And your response to all that is, as I understand it, that's been true for 40 or 50 years, and it really isn't all that serious. Is that your answer? I think I have two answers.
1: One is that that has been true for 40 or 50 years, and it hasn't caused any major problems. But the second is I just don't think that there are anomalies. The anomalies would be created. Let me take another example. There is the example of a case where payments that are made to the estate of someone who is deceased in the year after they died are not taxed under FICA But if the payment is made, during the year, in the same year that they died, they are taxed under FICA and FUTA. That provides a bright line. It's easy to administer. You go, you look, you see when the payment was made and you decide whether you have to pay the FICA and FUTA taxes, which is very consistent with how Congress wanted this scheme to work. Under Respondent Scheme, you'd have to look at all the payments that are made after the year that the the, uh, uh, person died and try to see, well, was there some reason why they really should have made made earlier? Were they late? Were they delayed? Did the employer not not make the payment on time? Was there a dispute? Whatever. And you have to sort all that out. I think under the logic of respondents' position, which is you're trying to put people, the federal government in the FICA and FUDA system is trying to put people in the same position they would have been if the taxes had been paid when they should have been. You have exactly the reverse problem, too. All the payments that were made during the year that the person died, you have to look. Well, were those advance payments? Should they really have been made in the next year? Why shouldn't they be made in the next year and then they're not taxable? And I don't really see any way to distinguish between any of those cases. I think Congress enacted a precisely drawn statute here with carefully drawn provisions that drew sharp lines and were easy to administer. And the wages paid rule is the classic example of that because there's very few disputes about when wages are actually paid. And if it's applied in accordance with its terms, then the result is that that, that you're able to you're able to do, it. and I don't think. your Your position
6: case. only only applies to back pay awards, which usually are you do determine the period of when the wages should have been paid in that kind of context. It's not just like the year end bonus or something like that. Well,
1: I, back pay covers if, I, I may cover a lot of different situations. I mean, I, I guess back pay is I understand the way they would use the word, which is not the way Social Security Administration views it. It's any time when somebody doesn't get gets paid later than when they should have been, which there, it could be due to someone's fault, it could be due to no one's fault, it could be it could be just a brief delay, it could be a long delay, uh, I, I, and when those cases then a dispute does arise, a significant dispute, and you come to settlement, the parties can just then characterize whenever the wait, uh, the wages were paid, if they could agree on that, and. The IRS would have a very difficult time disputing any of that.
7: Whereas it, it could be part of the uh, part of the settlement deal. You, you know, you, you, you say this date, and I'll I'll settle for a little a little less. Right, and that's exactly the problem. In, in our view, what
1: Congress did was enact a wages paid rule. And they, although, and they were in 1939, and then when they completed the job in 1946, directly addressing the need to avoid the kind of confusion, and uncertainty, and opportunity for manipulation that might arise under a should-have-been-paid rule. <clears throat> um, the, um, I would add that that the provisions at issue in Narotco, uh, at most, this, the court in Narotco did not discuss or cite any of the tax provisions at issue here. At the very most, they, uh, they referred to Section 209 g of the 1939 Act, which had slightly different language from the tax provisions that are issue, in issue here, although I wouldn't make a big deal out of that. It talked about quarters in which wages were paid rather than wages paid during a year. But it had slightly different language. And I think the Court's whole approach in Narodka was driven by its impression of the purposes and the need for security in an old age security system, which was what the social security system was. It would be anomalous to take that approach that was driven by the purposes of that system and was, if insofar as the Court was looking at language at all, was driven by language of different provisions that are in a context that's talking about benefits determinations and who's a fully qualified individual and apply it to the statutes that are issue, at issue here which talk about rates of taxation and are quite clear of ta- in speaking in terms of wages paid during a particular year. <clears throat> uh, I just finally'd add that the um, Treasury Department has by regulation has for a very long time since the time of Naratco and uh, in fact even before that do- looking at some of the wage, the um, uh, 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 rate provisions of the 19- when they were changed in 1939 has had a wages paid rule. It's firmly adhered to that position. The Treasury regulations give examples of, right in the regulations, of uh, cases where someone is paid one year for services in, a, in the prior year and they say, no, you go, you look at when the wages were paid and that answers all questions. It doesn't say, you then look and see, well, when, when should they really have been paid or why were they paid late or should they have been paid later than they were or any of those questions that could arise. The um, the, IRS, the Treasury regulations also speak specifically in terms of wages actually paid. Uh, that, that's, that's the basis of the, of the statute. I don't think that could be clearer, although I, I think actually the language of the statute is, is, is equally clear and consistent with that. Have
7: we given deference to those regs in the past? The Treasury regulations, there's,
1: has, the Court has always given deference to Treasury regulations um, uh, construing the tax code. Uh, and these are formal regulations that are in CFR. Now, in addition, they've been, those regulations have consistently been applied in a series of revenue rulings, uh, including one in 1989 that specifically applied those regulations to this kind of a case, to a back pay case, and said the wages paid rule is the one that applies. Um, that, the court has generally given deference to revenue rulings. In the Corral case, uh, the Court said that those rulings are entitled to deference, especially in a case like this where the revenue ruling is a direct interpretation of the Treasury regulation.
3: Any distinction between the extent of deference to the Treasury regulation and the revenue ruling, or is it the same?
1: I think it's the same. The, the, I mean, there's a long, a long story that's actually in our, that's in our brief about the history of revenue rulings. Before 1961, they were not did not have precedential value, and even within the, in the Treasury Department, and therefore, there was no reason to, to give them deference. And they weren't accorded deference. And there's a couple of decisions of this Court saying that they don't get it. But after 1961, authority to issue those regulations, which had invested in the Secretary of the Treasury, was delegated to the uh, uh, head of the IRS. And since that time, and then, the United, then this Court in the Corel case, dealing with, one of the, with some of those revenue rulings that came up at that stage, said, yes, we give deference to the IRS uh, revenue rulings because they are the masters of the subject. They have to deal with, the, uh, uh, deal with these kinds of problems on a daily but it basis. But didn't,
5: it didn't say we give them the same deference that we give a regulation.
1: It was a Corel was a pre Chevron case, and so they didn't talk specifically in the language of, of, of Chevron. But given the history of the delegation by the Secretary of Treasury to the head of the IRS, uh, I don't see why they wouldn't get the same deference. The IRS, when they publish revenue rulings, says these don't have the full breadth of scope because they generally deal with just a narrow issue and they don't intend that they apply. Uh, broadly to, to to items beyond the, the specifically the problem that they're addressing but within that scope they should get this uh, exactly the same deference. but in any event uh our position is consistent with uh and uh Really is um, our, our position is the position that's been in the Treasury Department regulations since 19 since 19 the early 1940s, and if there were any doubt about what these provisions mean, those regulations should be given effect. Treasury
7: regs um, adopted by how notice and comment rulemaking.
1: I, yes. I Almost certain. I mean, I, these regulations go back way, way far. Well,
7: if it is the yes. early 1940s, it is before the Administrative Procedure Act, and they probably weren't adopted. Right, but they have been the repromulgated since, and I am certain. I, I, I haven't looked at the Federal Register, but I am
1: certain that they were adopted that way.
0: Thank you, Mr. View Reserving Mr. Feldman, uh, Mr. Phillips.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to essentially focus on three basic points, what the Court held in Narotko, importance of the 1946 amendments to the Social Security Act on both the benefits and the tax side, and then finally try to discuss and balance the relative positions with respect to the administrative convenience or inconvenience of uh, the various positions taken here today. With respect to Narotko, I think I understand the United States to have finally conceded that the pivotal language in the Narotko decision is the wages paid language, and that there is no meaningful distinction between the wages-paid language that was the basis for the interpretation in that case and the wages-paid language that we have inherited now that is the subject of the provisions that are at issue in in this particular case. But to the extent that there is any question on that, I would ask the Court to recognize, first of all, it is clear that the Court was interpreting the 1939 Amendments, which contains that language. The first paragraph of the opinion refers to quarters of coverage, which is a concept that did not exist prior to 1939. So clearly had 39 in mind at that point and then if you look at the penultimate and the uh, ultimate paragraph of the supreme court of this court's opinions it also discusses quite specifically that uh, you know the provision that's at stake here and it says you know the petitioner argues to put it into context the amendments of 1939 <laughs> use quarters as the basis for eligibility as well as the measure of benefits and require wages to be paid in certain quarters And this Court then, in rejecting essentially that argument, said we have no doubt that it, referring to back pay, should be allocated to the periods when the regular wages were not paid as usual. I think there's no other way to interpret Narotko except for saying that language of wages paid and the benefits context, certainly, means that you allocate it back to when those wages should have been paid under, the, under that particular scheme. It's a special rule for back pay. Obviously, it doesn't deal with the general accrual problems. It doesn't resurrect any of the accrual problems. It doesn't ask you to try to make those kinds of decisions. It asks you to say when would they have been paid if, they had, if the employer had acted. And it's input.
0: dealing, Mr. Phillips, with the receipt of benefits by uh, it was a beneficiary suing. That's correct. It wasn't
8: a tax case at all. Right. It was a benefits case, Mr. Chief Justice, which is why it then becomes pivotal to turn to 1946. Well, just just, just, just on this point.
4: Yes, sir. Uh, uh, in other words, the concept of back pay is, is different here than if the employer is just late.
8: Yes, I think that's correct. I mean, it might turn out if the employer is late and there's and some fault attributed to it, that might be a different issue. But if he just paid at a different time and there's no issue about it, it's not back pay within the meaning of the federal scheme. So, I mean, I, you know, so I don't think there's we, any dispute as to whether this is back pay for purposes of So we looked at the rote code to
4: determine the, the origins of this phrase, of this concept of back pay or...
8: Well, there is, is that there,
4: litigation, or
8: right. There are regulations that define back pay and do it in terms of payments that would have been made by the employer, you know, but for the employer's wrongdoing. But I, I don't, and I don't understand the government either at, at any point in this litigation to have raised any question as to whether this is fairly describable as back pay. As I understand the question, they've asked the court to decide is, assuming it's back pay, what's the appropriate allocation rule for that kind of an approach. But, but it why,
4: if I, if I pay in January for something I should have paid in December, because I'm just like, why isn't that
8: back pay? It might well be back pay, depending on the circumstances. If the reason I didn't pay is because I've breached the contract and I have an obligation to pay it under those circumstances, it might well be back no, am I'm just, I'm just late.
4: I, my bank account was too small. to. I'm sorry? I just, we did just didn't have the money.
8: Right. I, I mean, but, I mean, I don't think you're entitled to hold off paying because you don't have the money. I, I, I understand that.
4: But my understanding is that the government tells me that in that case it is attributable to the month in which it was paid. And I'm trying to find out what how I'm... How how employers are going to tell a difference if we hold for you.
8: Right. Well, the back pay definition in the regulations is pay received in one period of time, which would have been paid in a prior period of time except for a wrongful or improper action taken by an employer. Under that circumstance, I suspect that that would fall within back pay as the Federal Government itself deals with it.
2: And Uh, for income tax purposes of the employees, it would be, we're talking back pay, it would be the year received?
8: It is in the year received, as it it turns out today, but but recall, Justice O'Connor, back when this was all enacted in both 1939 and 1946, it would not have been paid under those circumstances. It was a whole different regime with respect to income taxes that existed at that time and against which Congress was acting with respect to the taxing part and the benefits part of the Social Security Act. Well, but
4: under your view, any uh, late pay is wrongful.
8: Well, it might be. I, I I don't have a view on that, actually, uh, Justice Kennedy. All I'm doing is reading the reg and saying that they attribute to, you know, the question is whether it's wrongful. There may be issues. just wrongful. is improper. Right, improper. Wrongful or improper. Uh, my guess is it would, be, it would be a basis for which you could make a claim of back pay. But that's obviously not what the, what Congress was concerned about when it modified the rule to make it simpler. Yes. It was dealing with the, the traditional accrual problem of payments that you expect in the ordinary course to be paid at times that are different from when the services arise. And then what do you do in that situation, which is a pretty common problem. It's one I face oh, but, but every year. the
9: point be that Congress did one want to make it simple. I'm sorry? It, Congress did change this because it wanted to make it
8: simple. Oh, absolutely, Justice Breyer. And Bryant.
9: making it simple for people, you just look to the, ye- the, the, the quarter or the year in which the money was received, and that's when the tax is due. Now, if we adopt your position, I think I would agree with Justice Kennedy's implication. Suddenly, it's not going to be so simple anymore. And it isn't just an allocation question. It's also a question of what is it you allocate? And sometimes you're going to allocate these payments, and sometimes you won't allocate the payments. It sounds like a mess. Well, that's the, that's the.
8: You know, the, the court addressed exactly the same "quote mess" in Narodko itself.
9: They it Narodko was very simple, really. It was just a question of whether or not people are covered for social security purposes. But but it addressed it this terrible. If you said they're not covered for social security purposes simply because the employer uh, never paid them their wages and they got it all in one lump sum after they were 50 years old, that would be terrible. Right, but just, of course you allocated.
8: But Justice Breyer, the point is, is that there are still the same accounting questions that will arise under that scheme that will arise under what under our interpretation today in this court, and the government argued, don't go that route because there will be accounting problems. Assuming that they are the same.
9: Assuming and, they're the same. Right. I'm not positive, but I'll assume it.
8: Well, they are very, okay. very, very similar. Assuming Justice they fire. are the same. And the what court dismissed the those as not
9: insuperable. What about the other difference implicit in what I asked? Obviously, where you have a Social Security statute and people are supposed to be covered you're going to make a big effort to allocate this backwards because if you didn't, it would mean that the statute wouldn't serve its basic purpose. Here, however, what we have is not only a desire for administrative simplicity, but we also have who knows where the chips will fall. I mean, let them fall where they may. Sometimes some employees will be helped. Sometimes others will be hurt. Sometimes, you know, who knows? And therefore, you don't have this overriding statutory goal to get the backwards allocation?
8: There there are two answers to that. One is, in the 1946 amendments, Congress was very clear when it said, what we want here is conformity on the benefit side and on the tax side. And therefore, the, the, the ultimate question about administrative convenience isn't the answer. What Congress wanted was for the two schemes to be the same. So to the extent that the benefits tends to take you back in time, as I think the, co- the, the government has conceded today, it continues to do. In order to comply <coughs> or to further the overall objective of Congress in 1946, you have to do the same thing on the tax side. Otherwise, conformity is completely impossible to achieve. And that's the overriding congressional purpose, Who cares? it seems to what, me. What's so, what's so
9: important about having coverage question of what quarters are covered for beneficiaries and the tax question of where you pay the ficus, who cares whether they conform or not? Why does it matter? Well, Three examples you came up with, their response to that is, each of them involves, if you're right, the government collecting less money, and we don't
8: care. Well, I mean, there are two answers to that. One is the overall purpose of the Court's mission here is presumably to implement Congress's intent. And if Congress says to you, by adopting exactly the same words for two separate provisions that deal with two different schemes, but then it seems to me the answer and, and, uh, is and, uh, adopt Congresses and, and tells you we want conformity between the two.
6: Mr. Phillips. And the only way – I'm sorry, Justice. Yeah, let's assume Congress said that and meant that completely. Is it cor- is, is, uh, Mr. Feldman correct in telling us that, despite that clear statement from Congress, for the last 50 years they've doing, been doing just the opposite and following one rule for benefits and another rule for taxes?
8: Yes. For the last 50 years, Social Security administration. But at least we
6: are cl- what is called into question is a uniform, consistently followed practice for five or six decades.
8: Yeah, on both sides, though. Remember, Social Security Administration has had an equally uniform rule that it has applied since the very day Naraco was decided and when the 1946 amendments went into place. And if you look at the lodging that we filed, that identifies the description of this analysis by the Social Security Administration. From day one, they said, the Court said in EROTCO, for back pay, you have to allocate it back, and that's the way we're going to apply it. And, that, and that's what you makes You disagree
3: it. with the uh, — Mr. Feldman told us that uh, on the benefits side of the allocation, it was really up to the wage earner, could do it either way? I can't imagine why, well, it might, I think he told us, first of all, in most cases it means nothing at all.
8: Right, but that's clearly wrong. Because when you do, I mean, it may be one thing for quarters of coverage, which is what he identified, but when you're talking about the maximum benefits of $50,000 and you're talking about incomes that well exceed that, how you treat that money is a big, big difference in terms of how it it applies out in a particular situation.
3: If you would create the symmetry between benefits and the tax, you would be creating an asymmetry between the income taxation of the back pay and the taxes that go with that back- But
8: That's an asymmetry that has existed for all time. There's never been consistency between income taxes and Social Security taxes. What I'm trying to do is say that when you talk about, quote, Social Security taxes, which defines what kinds of benefits you're going to get and whether you're entitled to benefits in any event, as opposed to, as opposed to Social Security taxes as to how much has to be contributed by the employer, that it ought to be the same. It, it should not be that John Butcher, well, for instance. I, in,
3: in the case of Social Security and that allocation, the employee benefits every time by doing it the way Neurot did. The employee could only be helped. On the other side, Sometimes employees are well, helped, sometimes they're not.
8: Well, I don't, I don't know that they'll always be helped. There are certainly certain circumstances where it depends on how much income they had under what, uh, at but what then, point but time. But then,
3: Mr. Feldman tells us they have an option if it wouldn't work out for them to, to spread it back. Over well, I don't over.
8: read Narotco as having given them that option. I read Narotco as saying that, you know, you must allocate back. That's the answer for back pay in order to do it. But, you know, if there's some mechanism in there for waiving their rights, I suppose that may be true. But I don't think you can uh, analyze the same language and the same statute adopted at the same time with a command that the two ought to be in conformity to each other and then interpret them as allowing fundamentally different approaches. And, and that goes to the core of the question of administrative ease. Let's be clear about this. There is an entire set of accounting rules for Social Security that exists today and a complete set of accounting rules that apply under the under the IRS. And as I understand the government's position, Social Security is absolutely right in its interpretation of what is required here. So, if you are going to have consistency in this approach, the only way you can have consistency is by moving the IRS over to the well, Social what, what Security. What language,
0: side. Mr. Phillips, precisely is it in the 1946 amendments that you say insist that there be symmetry?
8: The, the Senate report that we. Uh, uh, I, I mean the language in the, in the oh, act itself. Well, the language in the act is wages paid. It's exactly identical in both the Social Security benefits language and the Social Security and actually, man, the tax provision itself. Wages paid is the operative language, and as I understand the government today, they concede that's the key term that we're, that we're focusing on. And that language was used, you know, with the express statement in the legislative history that it was done for conformity, which I, you know, just reinforces what I think common sense would is, tell us is, in terms is, is, is the Senate report cited in your brief? Yeah, uh, yes, uh, Justice, uh, oh, Mr. I, Chief I, Justice. I it's on page 21 of our, of our brief. Thank you. It seems to me that inter-
7: the Internal Revenue Service didn't read that or didn't, didn't didn't think that everybody paid attention to it or what? I, I-
8: well, I, I, specu- I hesitate to speculate about what the Internal Revenue Service's motive was here, other than I do think it's important to put in context. Remember, the Internal Revenue Service, the, the government's position here is this doesn't promote fairness. This doesn't promote revenue enhancement. The sole purpose that they try to promote is some notion of administrative simplicity. And so they have a somewhat simpler method of dealing with it. It just happens to do violence to core notions of statutory interpretation, creates two different schemes of accounting that every employer and employee has to deal with, and creates the, the kinds of disruptions in the scheme that we spend some time talking about under the exceptions under the Social Security. But if you
7: want to talk about violence to the statute, Neurotco, uh, uh, it seems to me, does a fair amount of violence to the statute and I suppose the question is whether you're going to uh, uh, whether it's worse to extend that violence to both half of both halves of the statute or or to leave Narotko where it is as a case that uh, where a hard case made bad law uh, taking the word paid not to mean paid in order to prevent the uh, Social Security recipients from being uh, read out of the system. Uh, I'm frankly attracted to the latter uh, approach.
8: And that, would, and that might be a colorable argument, but for the fact that Congress, before the ink was dried on Narodco, looked at exactly that language, adopted exactly that language, and engrafted it into the statute on a going-forward basis. And so the notion that the Court might revisit Narodco you know, today, I mean, one, the government doesn't ask you to, and two, it doesn't make sense to do that. And second, I don't even understand the government to be asking you to reconsider it on the benefits side. What it says is you can have a tax rule that goes in one direction, a benefits rule that goes in another direction, when the language is exactly identical.
6: uh, uh, This dichotomy that's gone on since 1946, has anybody in Congress tried to straighten this out, you know? Has there ever been any motion
8: to... Clarify this terrible (laughs) inconsistency. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because both sides of the, you know, I mean, the the federal government is, is obviously of two minds on this score. I'm not sure who would have generated enough momentum in order to try to get it uh, changed under those circumstances. So as far as I know, there haven't been any legislative efforts. Does the general
6: policy that underlies our doctrine of stare decisis have any bearing on what we should do with this case, do you think?
8: Well, I would hope that the Court would uh, rigorously enforce the ruling in Narodko. And, but beyond that, I don't, I think you get more mileage in this particular context because Congress in 1946 ratified Narotco and implemented it on a going forward basis. So, I mean, I, I don't think there's a, qu- I, I don't understand the government to be arguing that we ought to revisit Narotco at, at this particular. But will you make a, a like
9: a, a quick summary. I'm asking you to repeat yourself in a sense. But, but, but I, look, I, is a famous case. And, and, uh, I don't
8: think I appreciated that till today. But <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know,
9: but it's the other part. It's a famous case. It's, it says that Neoratko is about uh, uh, back pay uh, being uh, covered by the Social Security Act, and more importantly, the court says that that even though the administrators think it shouldn't fall within it, right. Congress wanted to. So it's opposite Chevron. It's the it's the Chevron. Chevron. <laughs> It's always been interesting for that reason. So I have thought, well, gee, that's what this case is about. They're they're saying this word, you know, this word uh uh wages here. Uh covers back pay. Now, once they make that decision, they sweep away the little subsidiary argument, uh, which is that it couldn't mean that because otherwise you'd have to allocate. And they say, oh no, go allocate. All right, so I think of it. Where Congress said that wages include back pay, you allocate. And now I think this isn't that. And Congress didn't even say that. Congress wasn't talking about taxes. The Court never thought Congress was talking about taxes. They weren't talking about some general allocation rule we were talking about the allocation of the back pay, which counts as wages for purposes of the Social Security Act. You see why
8: I kept thinking it was different? Sure.
9: You're going to tell me, no, it's not different. Right,
8: because people. in the 1946 amendments. When, when, and for exactly the reason you identified, Narotko is a famous case. Mm-hmm. Congress, seven months after the 1946 famous Narotko decision, mm-hmm. comes back to this same tax <laughs> and benefits position uses exactly that language. What could Congress have meant? It clearly didn't mean to overrule Narotco on the benefits side, and it says it wants the tax side to conform to it. So in 1946, Congress told us the right answer. And hopefully 55 years, this Court will tell the IRS that's the right answer. Get in line with the Social Security Administration and, and, and affirm the judgment below. If they need a change, let them take it to Congress. If there are no other questions, I'll... Uh,
0: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Feldman, you have four minutes remaining. I just have a couple of brief
1: points. Um, one, is agree we,
7: that
0: it's a famous case.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it is for me now, moderately. Uh, I, I think one of the points actually I wanted to make is that to look carefully at what happened in 1946. This Court decided in Aratco, there's not a trace of any indication in the legislative history of the 1946 amendments that Congress had any idea that Narodko had been decided. They certainly did not say we are trying to conform anything to Narodko. So that's the first point. The second point is what they did do there is they also did not change the specific provision that was at issue in Narodko, which was a benefits provision. It was a definition of who is a fully qualified individual. They didn't change that at all, and so they didn't discuss it. What they did change was the tax provision for the wage base. And that provision they changed to move it to the wages paid rule which they had started to bring in in 1939. And they said why they did that, to avoid the confusion and and difficulties that the other rule had caused. Finally, then, they changed the wage base in the Social Security Act, which was not at issue in Narodko because that had nothing to do with wage bases; It had to do with uh, who was a fully qualified individual. They changed that, and they said, well, we're doing this just to conform with what we've done with the tax provisions. I think if you put it all together, what the clear intent was, was to keep the taxes easily uh, collectible and the e- to uh, uh, pursue the ease of administration that they had started in 1939, and then just to bring the Social Security wage-based definition in line with that. But I don't think saying that meant in any way, or there's no reason to think, the Congress thought that what, if they were aware at all of Noratco, that it had anything to do with taxes. Um, as far as the Social Security, uh, just two other very brief points. Um, one is that the Social Security uh, publication 957 discusses what they, their uh, method is, and they do give a, they do give an option because they say you can you report the back pay on your W-2, and then if you file another uh, filing allocating it back, we'll look at that. If you don't, you can just leave it allocated on the W-2 for the year it was paid. Um, and finally, just one other point that I thought was interesting was that the 19, uh, Mr. Phillips referred to the 1943 income tax provision that did allow some uh, attributing back pay to prior years. That was limited to where it was 15 percent uh, or more of your wages. But it, this was a statute which they enacted. It's called Section 119, Back Pay Attributable to Prior Years. It starts off if the amount of back pay received or accrued by an individual and so on. So when Congress wanted to address the back pay problem in the income tax context, right around this time, they did it. They did it in express language. They kept that into effect, in effect for a certain number of years. They limited it to where it's more than 15 percent of the income. And then they got rid of it when they found that that was too difficult to work in, I think, 1961 or so. This is all, none of those things happened with respect to, in 1946, with respect to uh, the Narotko decision or the FICA and food taxes that are at issue here.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. The case is submitted.
5: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.